Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161AR80, writes, From the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 186, January 3, 1989. Otto Scott and I are going to discuss the question of rights. The very fact that it is necessary to talk about rights and that it has become so important a subject in our time tells us something, tells us there's something wrong with us because the whole perspective has shifted from responsibilities to rights. This shift has been described by a number of scholars through various uh, terminology depending on their particular discipline. One uh, description of it is from uh, the shift from a face culture to a guilt culture. A face culture puts all the emphasis on appearances, on maintaining a face oriental style, whereby a man or a woman tries to maintain a public appearance and no one mars that because everybody respects everybody's appearances. You are what you appear to be. As against that, a guilt culture is one that emphasizes individual responsibility. And therefore, if you fail to meet your responsibilities, you do feel guilt over them. Reisman and his associates in the Lonely Crowd, a study at the beginning of the 50s, described the shift as one from production to consumption, from being inner-directed to being group-directed. A number of other uh, sociological and anthropological terms have been used to describe this shift. But what has happened is that instead of feeling a responsibility to the world, people now feel the world has a responsibility to them. There was an old saying which was prominent in a number of cultures and uh, was a Jewish proverb as well. And the gist of it was that the world was not empty when we were born into it. We should not leave it more empty when we leave it. In other words, we have to contribute something to the ongoing culture. This was very much stressed when Otto and I and Dorothy and others of our years were in school. One of the very, very uh, much stressed holidays in those days was Arbor Day. You never hear of Arbor Day anymore. But uh, we were told as children that we had a duty to plant a tree. They tell us now that environmental concerns are something new. But in those days, there were many such things expressed on Arbor Day, and we were taught that we had a duty to the world and to the future in a number of ways, and one of them was plant a tree once a year. And classes would do that, grade school classes. But that's gone now to a very great extent. If 
people feel a responsibility to the environment, tree planting, let Washington do it through some agency, not the individuals planting trees. The emphasis, in other words, is that everything should be done. We are the ones who say what is needed, and a statist agency provides our needs and the needs of the earth around us. Rights, therefore, represent something very, very wrong with our society, not anything such as was meant, for example, in the Declaration of Independence, when the rights were associated with freedom and responsibility. Otto, would you like to add anything in the way of a general statement before we get into some more specific things? Well, it's interesting <clears throat> that you, do, you mentioned the lonely crowd. Inner-directed and outer-directed, as I remember, yes. was the phrase that they used. And the observation was that the older generation had equipped its children with a gyroscope so that they could maintain their balance as individuals throughout life. As contrasted with a growing tendency for the child to be taught to get along with the group. And as I recall it, it was the same book that came out with the acronym WASP, mm -hmm. White Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Somebody later said all Anglo-Saxons are white, so the W is absolutely ridiculous. It's really an ASP. <laughs> but at any rate, that became a, a shorthand term, which has now gone into the language, in which, speaking as a WASP, I've never particularly enjoyed. But at any rate, there were certain elements in Reisman's book, The Lonely Crowd, which said that he didn't approve of this communal trend, but he said it was discernible. To my surprise, the whole educational establishment and sociology, uh, sociological establishment, the therapists, the uh, spiritual doctors of our time, the psychologists, etc., seized upon this communal direction and promoted it. Yes. Not too long ago, uh, one of our mutual friends told me that one of his sons was classified as abnormal because he didn't join in the games during recess and preferred to read a book. Mm -hmm. That made him uh, something very dangerous that had to be looked into and possibly even disciplined. A social deviate. Ah, yes. Well, it's hard to keep up with the jargon, but I appreciate that. It's, it's, that's about it. Now, when you mentioned the Arbor Day, we were expected to plant a tree mm -hmm. ourselves. Yes. Well, today, they are, students are taught to be concerned about the environment in order to get society to plant a forest. Yes. Now, this is Rousseauism. This is a switch into the societal. And the whole question of rights in a society uh, is different than rights as an individual. An individual under the Christian uh, 
custom is a sovereign state, a small sovereign state with certain rights. In the 1828 reprint, in the reprint of the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, I looked up inalienable rights. I can't recite them, but there were about seven. One of them was the right of physical safety. Now that's a right that's being violated in this country with great abandon. And there were other rights, and that led me to the word inalienable. What's inalienable? Well, an inalienable right, according to Noah Webster, is a right that cannot be surrendered or taken away. Well, then, what happens to the Fifth Amendment? Ollie North can tell you that he has no Fifth Amendment rights because yeah. he was forced to testify against his wish under the threat of contempt, and the basis of the core of his testimony is being used as the basis for an indictment. Both of those violations were something we thought had been settled 400 years ago in the English Civil War. There is no Fifth Amendment right today worthy of the name. It's been totally gutted because Congress could not give you immunity from a protection, according to Noah Webster, that was inalienable. Moreover, the definition of rights increasingly is directed against those of us who believe in Christ. I gave you a magazine recently on animal rights. Yes, you did, and it stunned me. Uh, I couldn't believe my eyes. Yes. It's called the Animal Rights Magazine. Yes. Well, now they are calling for the liberation of dogs and cats. Remember when we were in we, Maryland and they liberated the lobsters? Yes. Did you know what happened to them? They took the live lobsters out of a restaurant. Give them credit. They paid for them. And they had them flown all the way from Maryland to New England and released by ship into the ocean for their liberty. <laughs> well, uh, the idea that you have a pet cat or a dog is now regarded as enslavement. Oh, really? And therefore, uh, there is a movement to liberate dogs and cats. What is, what is the poor dog going to do? They can't feed themselves. No. But this is what they're advocating. You also have uh, anima, tree rights being affirmed now. Are they to be protected from dogs? <laughs> I think they had us in mind. <laughs> but uh, in uh, India, some of the Hindu scientists claim that their experiments have demonstrated that vegetables feel pain. Well, that's part of Hinduism, <laughs> certain variations of Hinduism. Gandhi, I believe, belonged to one of those sects. And uh, Albert Schweitzer, although he said he was a Christian, had sacred feelings about all forms of life. Including worms, worms and, 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 and mosquitoes, insects, and, and so forth. And uh, this, of course, is pantheism yes. and animism. Yes. These are very old pagan religions. I had a flyer that reached me recently, and I was going to bring it tonight, but forgot. It was about some professor who was speaking, I believe, to a libertarian group. 
and the title of his talk was The Child as Nigger in America. Oh, really? Yes. And what are they elsewhere? <laughs> but the idea of children's rights uh, involves also that the federal government should give them an allowance. From whose taxes? <laughs> yes, of course. But once you begin to stress rights rather than responsibilities, there's no end to those rights. Well, yes, and I mentioned this once before. In reading the English magazine, The Spectator, where they have a little half a column a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. A hundred years ago, last year sometime, they unearthed an item from that edition where a countess had an island, she had at least half an island, and had turned it into a game preserve. And just outside the environs of the preserve was a village, and this was a time of unemployment. And the men in the village, in order to feed their families, went into the game preserve and shot the deer. And the countess had them brought to court for poaching. And the magazine said their defense was their necessity. And the editors went on to say, we have every reason to believe that they told the truth. And we have all the sympathy in the world for them. And if it comes to that, we think that better use could have been made of the land than to have turned it into a game preserve. But we cannot allow need to be converted into rights. Yes. Because if that is allowed, civilization will be torn apart. Precisely. And because today needs are being cons uh, uh, converted into rights, we have a destruction precisely of the productive element of society. Because if needs confer rights. The more needy you are, the more rights you have, and the fewer rights the person who is hard-working and provident has. Well, the rich have rights as well as the poor. The middle class have rights as well as the people on welfare. A Christian has rights the same as a non-Christian. Mm -hmm. Everyone has rights or nobody has rights. Mm -hmm. Well, this is what it leads to, the destruction of all rights. When you give rights to cats and dogs and seek to liberate them and the trees, uh, then what you are saying is that all things are equal and therefore all things are meaningless. Well, if all things are sacred, we're in an entirely different civilization. Mm -hmm. We're in a civilization comparable to parts of India. India still has jungles. India has enough cattle to feed all the people of India from here on. Mm -hmm. The cattle will breed, the cattle will graze, the meat can be used. Instead, the cattle wander freely because mm -hmm. the cattle are sacred, sacred cows. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me that the poverty the massacres, the prejudice 
the backwardness of India all disappeared from the public print as soon as the English were driven out. Yes, and very little was said in the 70s when we were shipping so much grain to India that the rats of India were devouring more grain than we were able to ship. And those rats were not killed for religious reasons. Well, then we have here crypto-Hindus. Yes. We have people who don't even know the origin of their arguments, which is, of course, another uh, definition of true ignorance. At least you should know what your argument is based mm -hmm. upon. Well, we have a welfare lobby. The welfare lobby is masterminded, though, in my opinion, not by the people on welfare, but by the people who live off the people on welfare. Yes. I was reading today something that uh, John Whitehead wrote, um, published this month, and I think it's interesting because uh, it does deal with this loss of responsibility. I'd like to read it. I quote, Secretary of Health and Human Services Otis Bowen recently delayed implementing President Reagan's draft order to stop such practices, that is, harvesting tissue parts from ab aborted babies. Inasmuch as abortions are legal, it would result in the waste of a resource not to use their tissues. They're already there. Yes. Why don't we use all the cadavers? Yes. The National Institute of Health panel reviewing this subject argued that the use of fetal tissue was acceptable. The panel tried to strike an objective note by couching its blessing in the phrase without taking a position on the morality of abortion. Avoiding the morality question nullified the central point of their alleged ethical debate. Incidentally, Dr. Joseph Mangella used the same rationale to justify his medical experiments on Jews bound for the gas chambers. But mankind is not by nature attuned to recognizing the teeth of tyranny until we are well clenched in its jaws. Unfortunately, we have largely handed over the, uh, to the government our individual authority and responsibility on issues ranging from education to health and welfare. The government's method of addressing parental problems is to exercise what it views as its ultimate ownership of children, leaving parents with mere custodial rights. And then he goes on to deal with uh, what's being done in the state school clinics with regard to uh, sex education uh, under the guise of helping deal with problems of uh, teen pregnancy and abortions. But as he stresses, we have largely handed over to the government our individual authority and responsibility. And that's what the rights movement is about. It is a denial of individual responsibility. The poor in the slums are not there because they're throwing money on uh, numbers rackets or on drugs 
or on uh, or, clothes or, or junk or, food. Or on the fact that the licensing laws and various and sundry other regulations prevent them from moving out of their position legally. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, you have to go to school before you can earn a living. There is an argument, and I'm not sure the city, I'm not sure that it's not Washington, D.C., of a black man who has been forbidden by law to open up shoe sign stands. Mm -hmm. Why? Because somebody in the city government decides that uh, it's just not a proper business. Mm -hmm. And he had a shoe sign, uh, a stand, and he wanted to franchise others. He wanted to employ others to shine shoes and give him part of the money and so forth. Well, <laughs> forbidden. Yes. So there are two sides to this. But you began with, I think, the proper emphasis when you point out the difference between the inner and the outer directed. As soon as it becomes communal, as soon as it becomes societal, then it becomes the government's province and is taken out of the individual's hand. Yes. Now, abortion. Can you imagine that the court decided, after all these centuries, that abortion is perfectly all right, all the way up to the day before birth? Mm-hmm all the way up to the day before delivery. There is no limit to when a woman can have an abortion legally in the United States. Then suddenly the court has determined morals. Well, if the government determines morals, what do you need churches for? Mm -hmm. What do you need a clergy or a religion for? That's a very important point because people are not aware of the fact that the courts have become the moral determiners that Congress, state legislatures, now feel that they can do what the church historically has done. Now, in the uh, scriptures, the law requires that a civil judge have alongside of him someone who is an expert in God's law, not to determine the guilt or innocence of the uh, person on trial, but to determine how the law applies to that particular type of case, so that the moral implications are to be developed by such a person. That's interesting, because in the Weimar Republic, that individual was a psychiatrist. Uh-huh. And it was not his job to determine guilt or innocence, that was up to the court. But the psychiatrist determined the treatment, end quote. Mm -hmm. Now, I recently got hold of some of the uh, literature from the Weimar Republic period. Unfortunately, it's all written by the left. Mm -hmm. The right has not bothered to investigate that very interesting period. But I notice, uh, I have one book, which is called The Film and Politics, in the Weimar Republic, and its subtitle, The, uh, the uh, Role of Artists in Politics. Mm -hmm. One of the first things that I ran across was the campaign for abortion. In 1923 and 24 and 25 and 26 in Germany, arguing that women were condemned to be butchered by amateur abortionists and quacks, 
and also condemned to have children they couldn't afford and so forth and so on, the whole thing. And it was printed as cruelty against women, oppression of women to force them to have children. All the arguments that Mr. Dukakis gave, would you criminalize the woman, were presented in that period in Germany. Mm-hmm. And one of the, and you mentioned Mengele, or rather John Whitehead mm-hmm. mentioned Mengele. Step by step by step, the state in Germany took over the morality of the people so that in the end the death camps were all right because the state said so. You remember, Otto, speaking of the fact that our side doesn't produce this kind of scholarship about those things. Uh, We had dinner a month ago, less than a month ago, with a graduate student who was kicked out, although he was the outstanding student in his department, history. Yes. Because they discovered he was a Christian. Yes. Yes. Now that's what one reason why we don't have that kind of scholarship. Well, history and was even worse. They turned him down. He was a PhD candidate. They turned down his dissertation by one vote out of seven. Mm-hmm. And the man who cast the one vote, which had him knocked out, told him that if he had known he was a Christian, he would not have admitted him in the program in the first place, and he would never again admit a Christian. Yes. All right. Now, that's one aspect of it. The second is that uh, neither Christians nor conservatives will give much to help finance the world of ideas. And that's why we're always struggling. Well, you mentioned, for instance, Reisman's book, which everyone in the country knows except the Christian community. Yes. A very important book. It's set an intellectual term with which we are now struggling. And my reaction to it, Otto, was similar to yours. I felt, well, these men have presented a devastating picture of what our culture has become. Right. So everyone will now unite, having seen the problem, to deal with it. But instead, there was virtually happy acceptance of it. They rushed to accept it. Yes. It's like Adorno. Mm-hmm. Adorno is one of the most important international figures in the West. The average Christian's never heard of him. Where are we when all these intellectual tides swirl all around us and we are totally unaware of them? It's curious, too, how these intellectual tides are created almost in advance in a somewhat prestigious magazine on the newsstands now we are told that the 90s will be the age of compulsion oh really yes who's going to do the compelling (laughs) oh of psychological compulsion we will be compulsive personalities oh oh i see (laughs) well (laughs) The mandarins in New York tell us what we are and what we should be. Well, of course, they're having problems in New York, just as in Los Angeles. It's interesting. I read recently that there are supposedly 80,000 gang members in the streets of Los Angeles involved in these turf wars. I don't know what that does to the intellectuals of Hollywood because... uh, they don't seem really to be too concerned. 
And New York City streets have been unsafe for a long time, and the New York Times has yet to discover it. Yes, and as a police officer told me years ago, he said, when the hoodlums outnumber the police, there is nothing you can do about it except bandage the cancer. Well, 80,000 gang members, how many police are there yeah. in Los Angeles? Yes. Now, what does this do to the whole system of rights? Yes, they're a product of the rights revolution, and it's going to destroy all real freedom on the part of the rest of the people. I'd like to uh, turn briefly to a very fine book by Thomas Sowell, Civil Rights, Rhetoric or Reality, published in 1984. And <clears throat> Sowell said, and I quote, it is now estimated that 70% of the American population is entitled to preferential treatment under affirmative action. <laughs> the civil rights vision has even been extended internationally to the plight of the third world and to racial policies in other nations such as South Africa." Unquote. Then he goes on to uh, deal with some of the uh, <clears throat> premises of the civil rights vision. The first, one of the most central and most controversial premises of the civil rights vision is that statistical disparities in incomes, occupations, education, etc., represent moral inequities and are caused by society. So that if, if, that if uh, you have more education or a better income or a better house than somebody else, that represents uh, some kind of societal uh, discrimination on your part. Then second, he says, another central premise of the civil rights vision is that belief in innate inferiority explains policies and practices of differential treatment, whether expressed in overt hostility or in institutional policies or individual decisions that result in statistical disparities. Moral defenses or causal explanations of these statistical differences in any other terms tends themselves to fall under suspicion or denunciation as racism, sexism, etc. So that if you call attention to the realities of differences in people, uh, you're violating somebody's civil rights. You cannot turn to a moral uh, explanation. Then third, he says, a major premise of the civil rights vision is that political activity is the key to improving the lot of those on the short end of differences in income. Then he goes into a number of other things, but I think these are sufficient to indicate how uh, very, very serious the problem is. Uh, Sowell, of course, as you know, is black. I was delighted to hear Walter Williams uh, say that if the civil rights people were honest, 
they would go after professional basketball. Yes. Because there's a high percentage of blacks in it, and that is discrimination in terms of their reasoning. No question. Sowell is the man who said there would always be a program to help the blacks as long as such a program provided a job for a white liberal. <laughs> yes. Uh, he also says in this same book, and I quote, In reality, the crusade for civil rights ended years ago. The scramble for a special privilege for turf and for image is what continues on today under that banner and with that rhetoric, unquote. Well, privilege instead of rights. You know, the old definition of the word discrimination was choice. Yes. It was never un uh, expected that the right of choice would become illegal mm -hmm. in the private sector. What we have moved into in the name of civil rights, of course, is to fragment the population, to divide the population along racial and ethnic levels, and to set up quota systems in which the majority has less of a quota than the minorities. Yes. So that white children are turned away from colleges in much greater proportions than minorities. Now this was tried once before in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And the Russian Empire. The Russian too. Yes. Well, the Austro-Hungarian is the one that I seem to run across more frequently. And as you recall, every subdivision so many jobs for Hungarians, so many jobs for Slovenes, so many jobs for Jews, so many jobs for Germans, and so forth. And it wound up in a seething mess of hatred. It also destroyed meritocracy because no one could move just by merit alone. He had to move on the basis of his background over which, of course, we have no control. We did not select our parents. Uh, this is not, you might say, a voluntary skin that I'm wearing. It was given to me, and that's it. So to treat me on the basis of my skin or my parentage is, of course, to fly in the face of everything upon which this country was once founded. Nobody is more aware of this than the minorities. Well, I mentioned Russia, and that's a very important example of this problem. In Imperial Russia, there were two minorities that exercised a great deal of leadership, Jews and Germans. Uh, the Germans had been brought in by Catherine the Great. Well, uh, both these groups, who were minorities within the empire, were a, a very uh, pro-education and they were also the responsible people they ran the uh, estates for the nobilities and some of the estates were equal to Rhode Island and uh, bigger states in the United States they also were the people who went to the universities and some of the early liberals began to say that uh, all this was wrong.
they should have equality. And there were too many Jews and too many Germans in the universities. And they were getting the majority of the civil service jobs. So they established a quota system for the universities. And this overnight radicalized the uh, Jews, who were the uh, more important group, and after that, the Germans. And that's why there was a link with uh, Germany and Karl Marx, because they were looking eastward then. From being very conservative, pro-imperial, overnight they were anti-imperial and were looking for radical doctrines and found them in Karl Marx because now the uh, Germans and the Jews who produced most of the potential university students were outnumbered in the quota by Tatars in some instances who only once in a generation at most, had a student go to the university. Well, do you suppose that the quota system would radicalize the majority in the United States? Well, I... Because it is not the Jews or the minorities that are the victims of the quota system today. It's the white majority. That's right. The old line. That's right. American, yes. Well, I don't know, but it has been disastrous wherever it has been applied, as in Austro-Hungary and uh, yes, that's why old I, Russia. That's why I think Austria-Hungary is probably closer to our situation, because mm -hmm. it was the majority in Austria-Hungary that had to make room, mm -hmm. and then found itself fixed in the quota. And it was the majority that turned against the empire there, not the minorities. The minorities, the minorities had it all their own way in yes. Vienna. They did very well. Mm -hmm. And in the end, of course, the majority ate them up. Mm -hmm. Well, in both, in, in both instances, the quotas did exactly the what... That's right. They did exactly what they're not supposed to yes. do. Because if you allow the best to rise, all society benefits. Yes. No matter what they come from or who they are. Yes. Now, of course, we've moved into something else. Education has become a passport to advancement in the United States to an unrealistic extent. Well... That yes. is schooling. Yes. Schooling. Yes. Now, you know... I keep getting this business from my youngest daughter that she wasn't taught something. And of mm -hmm. course, I'm the last man in the world that'll listen to that because mm -hmm. no one taught me most of the things that I know. It was always assumed in our generation that it was up to you to mm -hmm. continue your education. Yeah. This classroom could only tell you a little bit. There was a much bigger world out there that you had to learn all about. But we're now reaching the place where unless you get a certificate from the classroom, you are not considered entitled to promotion. We, in World War II, transferred that principle into the military service. Prior to World War II, a man could join the army as a buck private and rise to the rank of general. Yes. And some of our greatest men 
were without university educations and without a West Point training, they rose up in the ranks. Dorothy and I knew a very, very fine man who, because he was big for his age, uh, when his father died, he was 14, and he joined the Army. This was in the 1890s. Thereby, he could support his mother. And the next younger brother took over the work on the little farm. And... Uh, Joseph Denton was in the Spanish-American War. He was in World War I. Uh, he also uh, uh, was with Pershing in Mexico prior to World War I, and he trained troops in World War II. A very remarkable man. I've told you about yes, him before. Yes, Very interesting. And how he said in his day he knew every man in the Army, and if you had a problem with... Uh, anyone in the ranks. Uh, you took off your coat and went behind the barracks and fought him man to man. You had to know the family and background of every man under you, know his character, because the life and death of others would depend upon his dependability under fire. And so you assigned him a position accordingly. But uh, Colonel Denton never had more than, uh, oh, just four or five years of schooling. Very well-read man, very intelligent, very superior. Now we've turned education into a right. Mm -hmm. And education, therefore, the educated man today, let's say the schooled man, feels that he has a right to a certain position in the world. Mm -hmm. Now, up until recently, that position in the world was only attained through effort. Yes. But this, we now have a group, and a very numerous group. I mean, I can certainly understand the value of a university-trained individual at a period when, say, 0.5% went to the university. But when you have 40% going... You are in a Eurasian situation that the English were confronted with. They had educated all these hybrid individuals beyond the needs of that particular society. So what you had then was an overschooled, seething mass of resentful and rebellious yes. individuals. I have run into young men who have, who have said to me with great bitterness, I've got my degree and nobody will give me a job. Well, uh, I don't feel any more sympathy there than I would from the fellow who said, I don't have a degree and nobody will give me a job. What's the difference? Uh, the point is there aren't that many jobs for that many degrees. Mm -hmm. So we have people who expect certain rights. Now, I ran into this argument in a very interesting book on the Masonic movement. One of the Masonic lodges created in Germany in the late 18th century formed with a German nobleman and a Jewish individual who came together to set up a lodge. Only they came together to set up a lodge as a profit-making institution. And it was a club. They charged people to join and so forth and so on. And as usual would happen when two swindlers get together, <laughs> they got into a fight over the division of the funds. And the nobleman pulled a rank and said, I, after all, am a nobleman. 
And the Jewish fellow said, well, I happen to be a scholar, and my education entitles me to be an equal to your patent of nobility. And I thought, well, that's interesting, because this is obviously a very old argument, and that is that education entitles you. It doesn't entitle you to anything. That's very true. But Uh, the rights and the entitlements, and now they use the word entitlement. The government says certain programs are entitlements. Mm -hmm. Well, at one time, the term entitlement meant a patent of nobility. Mm -hmm. You were entitled. You received a title. Mm -hmm. And with that title, you had a certain position. Yes. Well, there were two things that marked uh, university degrees before World War One. First, only a limited number of people had them. And uh, therefore, second, they meant something. Yes, of course. Uh, they meant uh, a high standard of achievement. In fact, I'm here today because of that fact, in that during the massacres and all, when my parents escaped, the... Uh, thing that uh, kept uh, my father and mother alive was that uh, he had two degrees from uh, a Scottish university and college and he had a professorial rank so that uh, in the seething mass of refugees and there they were having walked for their lives until their there was nothing left at the bottom of their feet uh, in the way of a sole to their shoes. They were walking on raw, bleeding uh, feet. But when it was learned, there was a professor with two English uh, degrees and the ranks. Uh, the uh, British uh, consul made a point of coming to see if he could be of help. And various other officials of this or that country were uh, immediately concerned. Uh, That's a world that's now gone. Yes, indeed, I recall. That's interesting. My father went to the university in Caracas and took part in a rebellion. They were very modern then for that day. Yes, (laughs) and they, they had a ship. They rented a ship. They filled it with guns. And they proceeded, they were going to land, and they thought the peasants would rally to their standard. They were met by the troops of Juan Vicente Gomez, a very cruel man, who had every one of these students shot to death except my dad and one other. Mm -hmm. My dad's father was a British subject, so he was allowed to be exiled out of the country. Mm -hmm. But there... You are right. It was a great distinction, and in Germany it is still a serious crime mm-hmm. to, ch- to claim a degree that you do not, in fact, possess. Mm-hmm. Your father's experience reminds me of what happened in uh, Russia in the beginning of the last century, the Decembrist revolt, because it was a a student and young cadet type of operation 
and it was the first expression of the liberal intellectual mind and yet it didn't kill it here they were a group of young men young officers who had the liberal uh, liberal agenda in mind and so they started a revolution for the constitution a Russian constitution and because the ideas they were promulgating western liberal ideas seemed to them inescapable truths they thought that the masses would immediately respond because this is what all men would really demand exactly the same and uh, the masses outside of the military and the masses in the military didn't know what they were talking about couldn't see what was wrong no, and in fact they assumed when they were talking about the constitution in terms of the russian word for it that it was a woman so they were right arriving in favor of a new empress or some such thing well the africans some of the black africans thought independence meant you would all be rich and you wouldn't <laughs> have to work anymore yes uh, this brings us around to the old situation the business of rights and revolution the argument that Knox raised in Scotland against Mary Stuart first of all that she had no right to murder her husband and therefore should go on trial mm -hmm. and that shocked all Europe because the sovereign was the law mm -hmm. and he said the sovereign is under the law there's still hostility to John Knox in terms of that because there is no law in the United States higher than the sovereign mm -hmm. higher than the state mm -hmm. I see where it is considered unlikely that President Reagan will uh, answer that deposition that subpoena that Ali North's lawyer served upon him and President Bush will probably not either now here Mr. Reagan said he wanted to see the process of justice take place, so why doesn't he assist it? Yes, especially when North protected him at every point. He's unwilling to do a single thing in North's defense. Well, the whole question of whether it is proper to rebel against a tyrant, very old question. Mm -hmm was settled in the Old Testament in which they said it's your duty to do so under certain under certain God-ordained circumstances. circumstances yes it has to be a tyranny it yes. has to be anti-Christian mm -hmm. it has to be anti-biblical has to be anti-God yes well today rights are ideas which are anti-Christian we have rights to human tissue we have those now you have a legal right to abort yes and you have the increasing belief that uh, if you're an older person and are not regarded as socially uh, useful uh, which we would not be by a question of age we would not be by yes. a question of position yes. then you are not entitled to live 
so that murder is becoming commonplace in many hospitals. They don't use the term. No, no. There's Orwellian language has come into being. The phenomenon that Hannah Arendt noted about Eichmann and about the Nazis, she said they had developed an entire language, an entire vocabulary to hide the essence of what they were doing. And we don't talk about murder. We talk about euthanasia. We talk about the right to die. Mm -hmm. Isn't that an interesting right? Well, uh, the Wall Street Journal recently had uh, a very interesting article on uh, gangs of gypsies. This was December 15. And their readiness to steal and to feel morally justified in stealing from the rest of us. Uh, their attitude is, my culture is superior to all, all others. Whatever we do is right. Now, that's the attitude of elitists all through the centuries. Therefore, uh, you have the kind of definition of rights today, the right to kill unborn babies, the right to kill the elderly, the right to kill the mentally defective. Uh, I read recently that a particular type of uh, child, uh, I think anencephalic, not hydrocephalic, they're eager to find now and to take for human experimentation. Really? Yes. A living child? Yes. After all, he's going to die. We are all going to die. Of course. That argument could be used <laughs> against any of us yes. at any time. Yes. And will be. Don't Give them time. <laughs> Unless we, by the grace of God, reverse this as I believe we shall. The Lord shall. Well, of course. The fact of the matter is, and I'm quoting myself and something I've just written and given to you and you haven't yet had a chance to look at, is that all of these programs have actually worsened our situation and diminished our rights. Yes. And the programs which were, we were told were going to improve our society have actually been based on immoral grounds. Yes. And therefore, the American people are deeply unhappy. Mm -hmm. Just as any pe person becomes unhappy who is forced into living an immoral life. Mm -hmm. Well, our time is about up. I'd like to conclude just by saying this. What we need to do is to stress in our own thinking and with our children and those around us our godly responsibilities rather than rights. Only then can we turn this uh, increasing destruction of civilization around and become constructive peoples. Thank you all for listening and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ Rules dot com.